Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Matt talks about prototyping, and I answer some listener questions with Stephen, Nat, Josh, and TC. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Shoemaker from Hit Him With a Shoe. And this month, I wanted to talk to all of you about prototyping and game design. Uh, As you all know, games are a very tactile experience, and I know that's one reason that I personally love board games, is the fact that you not only get to interact with people and explore different ways of experimenting with systems and themes, but because you actually get to play with all the little bits, the cards, the boards, see the nice artwork on them, and enjoy those. Now, when you're working on your designs, of course, you don't always get to start with these nice finished products. Instead, you're probably working with paper cutouts, maybe some uh, boards that you've drawn out by hand, uh, and of course, using found parts that you've either bought in bulk online, or maybe you've stolen or borrowed from other games that you've either made in the past or even just bought. Uh, In fact, one of the best ways to get some parts is to go just buy old games that are on discount and use all of the parts that are in there for your own game design. Now, while this is a wonderful uh, way to first start out and exploring your ideas, I do like to go a step further in my personal designs uh, and start using things like laser cutters and 3D printers. Now, the main reason that I like to do this is because uh, it really gets me more excited and enthusiastic about the game that I'm building and designing. Now, you might think that just making the game itself, getting other people to try it out and play with it, Uh, is enough to really build enthusiasm about your game design. But I find using uh, better equipment to make better looking prototypes uh, makes the game feel a lot more tangible, especially as something that you want to actually produce. Uh, This also helps in your prototypes when you're getting other people to play test it. I've had games where I've had laser cut and or 3D printed pieces and people always comment on them and just really enjoy the experience and also get drawn to the table at events like Unpub or Protospiel uh, exclusively because they saw how nice the pieces looked. Now you can get this kind of experience using a service at a company such as the Game Crafter, uh, or you can also use uh, places like Makerspaces that you probably have accessible locally. Um, Personally, uh, I am very lucky in the fact that I have access to a makerspace, um, and this makerspace has things like a 3D printer, has laser cutters, um, it has different kinds of printers, uh, it also can handle making things out of um, cardboard, plastics, chipboard, um, all kinds of different materials that I want to experiment with. Now, I find personally um, that using things like 0.06 chipboard, which you can buy on Amazon fairly expensively, it's about a little less than 50 cents a sheet. You can get it in packs of 25 for about 10 bucks. Um, Works wonderfully for not only making components, um, but also for making player boards. Now, even though these might not be very... um, graphically pleasing necessarily. I find it's a great way to test out your graphic design and see how your layout uh, is really going to affect the user experience of your game pieces. 
This is another reason that I really like using these tools is because you get to play with uh, not your art that you might be getting from your illustrator if you're going to go that route, um, but more how you want to lay out things and how people understand both the boards and the components. It's a lot easier to reiterate design when you're using a tool like a laser cutter or a 3D printer because you can tweak what you've had and get it down to something that's going to be more like what you're going to end up manufacturing um, rather than just something that you're making by hand. I found this particularly value uh, in my most recent project, the Bee Lives We Will Only Know Summer Game. Uh, we've gone through about six or seven iterations of the player board, everyone an improvement so far, um, up to our most current version with art, which has been completely restructured based on the feedback that we've been able to play test through the other iterations that we've done. Now. Um, as I mentioned earlier, makerspaces are a great way to get access to this equipment. I would highly recommend you do that rather than buying your own, particularly for a laser cutter. Um, laser cutters personally is the most valuable piece of prototyping equipment that I have access to, much more so than a 3D printer. Um, uh, if you can find a makerspace, just look them up. There's a lot of them in communities. Um, universities have them. They're even getting to be in high schools and other educational facilities. There are also um, places that you can just go and get a membership to and use them. And they often will teach you how to use these as well. Now, I particularly like the laser cutter, not only because it allows you to make game pieces and game boards, uh, and your chits that you're going to use for the game, but because you need to have skills in uh, usually Adobe Illustrator or other vector type graphic drawing tools in order to use them. If you don't know what a vector graphic is, a vector graphic is an image that you can scale up or down. It is not dependent upon the initial size that you draw it at. And this is what you need a lot of times to get your final products into a game manufacturer or even a place like the Game Crafter in order to create your pieces and get your prototypes made. So the better you understand this, um, the better you can design your prototypes and the faster and better you can get your board layouts into manufacturing. And it's also just a useful skill to have in general, not just for game design, um, but also just for general graphic design and understanding the work that goes into creating a good and usable um, board, chit, or other game component that you may wish. Now, once you find a makerspace, usually you need to take courses with them to understand how to use the equipment safely. Um, there's usually a small fee, uh, but they're usually very um, friendly places. People are generally able to help each other out. They want to help each other out. Um, I find they're wonderful communities and I highly recommend you check them out. Um, if you want to talk to me about working at a makerspace or using any of this equipment, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, you can do so online with me, or you can also come and find me at either Origins or Dice Tower Con, which both of which I'll be at within the next month. Uh, if you want to talk to me there, you can hit me up on Twitter at BeLivesGame. Um, you can also find me at my uh, website, www.hiddenwithashoe, that's E-M, not T-H-E-M. Um, or you can just uh, find me on Facebook or other places. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all next month. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. We've got some listener questions here, and I am with Stephen Aramini, 
Nat LeVan, Josh J. Mills, and T.C. Petty III. Welcome all back to the show. All right, so our first question comes from uh, C.M. Perry, who is at BHFuturist on Twitter. He asks, do you have any tips for building multiple paths to victory? Uh, This is something I find really difficult. I usually have a singular focus, and everyone just goes for that. Multiple paths, I would say, are desirable. I enjoy games with them, but I think they're very hard to design. Any any tips? Let's start with Steven. Oh, that's a a hard one. Uh, I guess, uh, I guess I would, man, I, I don't know how I would, how I would answer that. Cause it's so dependent on the type of game that you're making. Um, well, have you done that in any of your games or do you just have single pass to victory? You know, the most, it, yeah, I, to me, I kind of notice it more in like Euro style games. So for me, it would be, uh, I have a game called coin and crown which has not come out yet it's um in production but it has the most euro feel of all of my games and so it it definitely has you know multiple paths in terms of you can go military you can kind of try to build up your money you can try and go for super powerful buildings um you can go a little more peaceful route and sort of uh upgrading your your town so um I mean, those are certainly, I, I really like playing those games. Um, as far as like designing them, I guess it, it tends to, to me, I just, I guess I equate it more with like a Euro game experience um, uh, where you have a lots of, lots of different, um, your decision tree is bigger, I guess. Um, and uh, maybe I'll have Nat, Josh, and TC bail me out. <laughs> I can say some stuff. Um, I don't know if it's going to bail you out. For multiple paths of victory, the way I tend to make things that are a process, right? You you go from input to output. Uh, like for Milkman, for example, you get raw milk and you do the whole process until you ship it to uh, the customer at their house. The, the multiple paths of victory part, I look at each part of that process and um, I think to myself, how can a player focus on this one aspect of this process and be viable even if they don't focus on the other parts? Like the other parts remain weak while this one part gets better. Uh, is that still a viable strategy? And I do that for like the three or four different things that exist along that, you know, kind of conveyor belt line of thinking. And then what happens normally is people can do multiple of those things. They can choose to do one really heavily. They can only decide to do two. Try to give them the freedom so they can mix that up. Kind of like think of it as like a pie graph of where they want to put their energy in the game and 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 build their engine. Uh, that's obviously going to be a lot easier for like an engine building type game. Um, but that's that's kind of how I approach it, uh, and a lot of people would say that my games don't have multiple paths of victory because the way you get the in-game victory points or deliver the contract is all the same. Um, but how you like how you actually get there is is varied uh, versus something that's very Euroy, like hey, I bought all the military, and I but I own the river, so I get these points from the river, and I get these points from the military. I'm trying to do that inside of the game, so the end result still still uh, a score that you feel like you've all contributed to but where those points came from or whatever the victory condition is comes from different aspects of your of your play and this is tc i'll pipe in just a little bit i i was thinking about it multiple resources or currencies and then using a counterintuitive way to get with each resource 
So what I mean by that is is starting with something like I mean you can do something as simple as a die roll where you roll a die and if it's if you if you if you choose like to use a die that's a three, it gives you three of something, but it also is detrimental. Um, is detrimental in some way up until that point. Whereas if you take a six, it's really detrimental towards you um, in in another way. So it's just it's just managing this idea that there is always going to be something a choice within how to gain a resource, and then having one or two of those different choices of how to get to those those currencies um hopefully that's close enough but <laughs> it's hard to, hard to come off the top of my head with a counterintuitive example come right? on you're tc petty <laughs> and now that everybody else has given me uh time to think i'm gonna say you know start with uh you know some things that are like completely different ways to win like you know what i'm I'm going to win this thing with just going uh, a military route or, you know, I'm going to try and win this thing with just going like a completely uh, civil development route. And, you know, normally those things wouldn't be connected at all. And then you kind of fit them together as you go along and say, all right, well, maybe I've got a thing here that kind of branches over from A to B, and then a little later on there's something that branches over from B to A, and that kind of gives you your, you know, you've already got your different sort of types of victory, but it's not locked into just doing one thing. You've got places on the path that you can say, all right, well, I'm sort of going this way, but I can also you know, veer off to the side and do this other thing if I need to, or maybe come back later and uh, have them work together. But, you know, you can definitely start with going two completely different directions and kind of fill in links between them later. It's all good advice. Just like throw in, I think it's really important that your multiple paths of victory are balanced. Uh, If you have three ways to win and one of them is really hard or unlikely to win, you only have two ways to win, so you got to make sure that each is at least sometimes viable, depending on people's strategies. Well, moving on to our second question from Brian Copter, who is at Scrapyard Armory. Uh, he asks, "How do you get playtesters?" I know this is this is always a pain because you can never have too many playtests. So let's start with uh, Josh and TC. How do you get your playtesters? Luckily, in North Carolina, where we are currently, we have the Game Designers of North Carolina. It's a it's a designer group, and we meet about ends up being about once a week, uh, maybe once every two weeks. It d- depends, but we're always going to have playtesters there, right? Because it's going to be each other. So we have that nice kind of pull of like, hey, we're here to play our games and get them in shape for more of a general audience. Um, the next step after that is we have a really vibrant board gaming community that uh, just play game, right? Like, like Ruth just lives down the road from me. Uh, there's quite a few other people. They And once you get in a good state, they're more than willing to come over and play test your game and give you great feedback. Uh, in addition to that, we run an Unpub Mini at Atomic Empire here in Durham. And uh, obviously, we go places. Like, I go to Sol- I went to SaltCon. I just got back from Proto-Atlanta. I go to Unpub. I go to Unpub Mini. I've gone to an Unpub Mini up in Pennsylvania just because, well, not anymore. I have a baby now. There's no way I could ever pull that off. But before, I just drove up there and went and did it. Um, so you gotta you gotta go where the play testers are, uh, and you also should build a really strong design group around you if you can. Uh, doesn't have to be in your like physical location. You can always do that online as well. So I'll counter that with some really bad advice. 
You should, because that was good. You should, you should uh, get about ten games published, and at that point, people know you, and then then it's really easy to get your games play tested. Win a contest. <laughs> Nat, thoughts on getting playtesters? Uh, my my best recommendation is move to North Carolina. That seems to be where it's all at right now. <laughs> <laughs> or make me do it for you. <laughs> even even easier. Yeah. Oh man. My since having a kid, my my playtesting time has uh, pretty much disappeared, uh, except for going out to conventions. But uh, yeah, early on, it was definitely you know just going to as many little local events, uh, taking advantage of my game group as much as I felt they would permit. Uh, you know just taking every opportunity you can find to try and get a couple people to sit down and play your game. Uh, there's, I don't think there's a, a secret weapon, a secret formula to making it happen. And Steven. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, it's definitely been finding a core group uh, here in Reno, which is, you know, I don't think has nearly as deep a pool as like North Carolina for game designers. Um, but I have been fortunate to find like a core group of people that are all into playtesting and 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 I think that's really so important because if if it, it is much harder to just bring your game out to people who want to play a finished polished game, but if you're all of the same mindset of hey I brought my broken game and you brought your broken game. Let's let's test them out. It's it just is so much easier to be within that same group. And then the only other thing I'd say is you know um, I've I've had a lot of great feedback just by sharing my game uh, through like the Twitter community and the gaming community. And people have been really really great uh, in terms of doing like blind test blind testing um, or you know requesting uh, print and play. And sending it out to people, so you know, don't don't hide your game or, or, or you know, think it's like this great secret because it's, uh, you know, this brilliant idea that you don't want somebody to steal. You know, it, it, it's so much more beneficial to share your idea and get other people excited about it, and then get that feedback. I recently had actually a pretty good response with putting a couple of print plays up on Twitter, which, I mean, a lot of that is building your community because I know two years ago. I tried the same thing and no one even clicked on it. So it's it's about meeting people and getting your name out there. So they say, oh, I've heard of Chris before. I've bought his game or whatever. And they are interested in trying your stuff. But um, last thing I'll throw in is if you do get playtesters, be nice to them, respect them. Uh, even if their feedback is terrible, accept it and thank them because they're giving you their time and they will not play your game again if you're mean to them. So always be nice to your playtesters. There's there's no way for a playtester to give you bad feedback because you should be watching their body language, you should be watching their actions, you should be paying attention the whole time. Now they might try to suggest some dumb stuff at the end, but that's you're supposed to fix that. I always ask them and I always focus on how did it make you feel? What was the emotional experience? So there's never a bad play test. There is never a bad play test. Agreed. All right. Moving on to our final question from Alan Anderson, who doesn't have a Twitter and is my father, just so we know. Um, so he's asking, have you thought about creating uh, bridge games to connect different games together, like a card pack or something? So I know, um, what is it? Something, Shipwrights of the North Sea? That series, they have an add-on where you can connect all three games for some 
massive three or four hour epic, but I've never heard of anyone bringing out anything that would connect two different games to be combined into some massive game. Any thoughts on this? I started trying to do this about halfway through designing New Bedford. I said, all right, now that I know how this game works, I want to design like this completely like independent game that you can totally play by itself or you can like set it up side by side on the table and literally have like two or three people playing New Bedford on one half and two or three people playing uh, the other game on the other half and they kind of fit and work back and forth and influence each other and at the end you'll finally have like well this guy won this game by this metric and the other guy won the other game by the other metric and then you compare them somehow and wow was that a mess uh the the second game i'm actually still working on and it is a completely different game that doesn't do that at all because uh i think if you start with that as your goal you know you don't even know if one of your games is going to be published and so you know trying to think ahead and do that and say you know i'll, I'll design two that can go together maybe that'll be a, a good selling point that like that's that's really ambitious and you know if you're going to do something like the shipwrights where you absolutely know you're going to do all three games uh i think you can maybe pull it off a little bit but you know short of that if you're going out and looking for publishers uh make two different games and be happy with that. Uh, Steven. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess it, where you're starting to see a lot of blurring is like with, um, role-playing games and, um, legacy games and, and games that are campaigns, which aren't, I, I guess I wouldn't qualify them, the, them as bridge games, but there are elements that bridge from one game or another. So, um, I think that's a, a big part of like, you know, emerging, uh, gameplay in terms of it's not just you play the game and uh, at the end of that session you pack it all up and, and the game's over um, and instead you know what you're seeing is a lot of character generation that carries over into the next game or events that carry over uh, into the next game um, so you know while it's not separate games in themselves I, I do think that's um, a pretty cool thing that we're seeing lots of those uh, types of experiences now that you didn't see, you know, five years ago. And Josh and TC? I have no idea. <laughs> I'll jump in. I'll jump in for Josh then. Uh, I I was thinking about the idea that uh, it's probably, it, again, it's probably bad advice, but it's probably actually the most realistic advice is just like Nat was saying, it's an ambitious undertaking and it's going to take a long time to figure it all out and you're probably going to get it wrong and i would say even with the good example that we have of prodigals club which puts three different modules together with the original base game of last will uh, which is probably the most succinct and best best version of this that we have right now the you're just you run into this issue where if all three games aren't like or two or three or four or however many aren't all good people don't want that series they don't want the bridge game so if you look at the raiders of the north sea uh 
trilogy, kind of the Raiders trilogy, one of those isn't very good. And and the problem with it is that, I mean, Josh is making sounds, but one is notably worse than the rest. And it's the starting one. And if you have to start with that and build your ship and then have to go through the whole thing, you're starting on a a sour note. So my my biggest advice is if you're going to make a game, if you're going to make two games, make three. If you're going to make three, make four. And oh, then yeah. and then weed out the one that didn't work as well because that's probably your best way out. Make sure the first one's the Matrix, not the second or third one. That's true too. Make sure your first one's the bomb, and then do the rest. <laughs> this also brings up um, we've been talking about mechanically connected games, but I know a lot of companies will keep multiple games in the same universe, uh, so they can reuse story, reuse characters, and just build up that storyline. So. I mean, are those connected games? If people are really immersed in story, could you play multiple games in a session and call it connected? I actually end up designing multiple games in the same thematic range because I, I'm i playing around in that world. So for instance, I have I uh, Rocky Road Alamode, which I developed at the same time as Milkman, right? So ice cream trucks and milk, tr- and milk trucks. Uh, I have uh, I did a game uh, was a cardboard finalist for the first year was uh, Big Easy Busking or Street Bands New Orleans. At the same time, I made uh, Masters of Sound, which actually was the next year. Right, they're both music driven games because they're both kind of takes on my perception of that. So I end up doing that uh, quite often. And to me, um, now they're not with the same publishers. But to me, they're in the same world, and as I would like everybody to buy and play all of them in each thing. <laughs> so Josh makes eight games and then keeps one. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> he goes overboard. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the idea of having games in the same world that are vastly different mechanically and explore different facets of that theme. Cool. Well, I think that does it for our questions. So if everyone wants to just give some contact info, let's start at the bottom with Josh and TC. At Joshua J. Mills on Twitter or Gmail or anywhere else on the internet. Uh, Thanks for having me on. And... Game Designers of North Carolina. <laughs> That's right. And thanks again. Thanks for having me. Surprise. And mine is at Puppy Puppy Shogun on Twitter. Puppy Shogun on Twitter. And that's the best way to get to me. And that? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Oakleaf Games. Or you can read my occasionally updated blog, oakleafgames.wordpress.com. Or look for me in the uh, Button Shy Game of the Month Club. Uh, this year we're doing a whole series of games based around time travel it's a lot of fun come check it out and join us and steven uh just steven aramini uh everywhere pretty much uh, s-t-e-v-e-n-a-r-a-m-i-n-i and you can find me on twitter at BlueCubeBGS, and i uh, contact the show with all the information that'll be at the end of the show thank you all for coming thanks a lot thanks thank you That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop, like the show on Facebook, and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.